America at a Crossroads is a weekly live webinar series that brings together journalists, scholars, thought leaders, and policymakers for discussions regarding the state of American democracy, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. The series was jointly founded by Jews United for Democracy and Justice and Community Advocates, Inc. To register for our live webinars, join our email list at JewsUnitedForDemocracy.org. We have a big program uh, tonight, and it could not be more timely with Germany and the U.S. agreeing to ship tanks to Ukraine. We're moving into a different phase of Western uh, support, uh, some of it perhaps in terms of the U.S. tanks, more symbolic because of the delivery time. Nonetheless, very significant, the events we've seen, the Pentagon with a six-fold increase in manufacturing of heavy artillery announced uh, to supply Ukraine. So I'm anxious to hear what Ambassador McFall has to say about today's developments. Ambassador Michael McFall uh, served as U.S. Ambassador to Russia during the Obama administration from 2012 to 2014. He was the architect of what was dubbed the Russian Reset Policy. Ambassador McFall is currently the Ken Olivier and Angela Nomolini Professor in International Studies at Stanford. He also directs Stanford's Freeman Spoley Institute for International Studies, and he's a Peter and Helen Bing Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Welcome, Ambassador. It's very good to have you with us this afternoon and this evening, depending on our time zone. Thanks for having me, Larry. And uh, you're just reminding me as you read my various titles that two, four of the people you read off are all Southern California folks. The Bings, uh, Spogley, Brad Freeman. So glad to be here. And the Bing's wonderful philanthropists here in Southern California um, and uh, dear friends to many of us. So always a pleasure to be able to mention Peter and Helen's names. Yes. Um, well, uh, supplying Ukraine with, with Leopard and Abrams tanks seems a very big step to many of us from defensive supply of arms to what are offensive uh, capabilities and the ability of Ukraine to potentially take back territory that Russia seized in its attack on the country. And I'm just curious how big a development you see this as. Well, I think it's a big development. Uh, I congratulate the Biden administration uh, for taking this uh, decision. Uh, And that will, and with the Germans announcing today, they wanted to do it with us. And so that now I think creates the permissive conditions for other countries in the alliance, and maybe even not in the alliance, but probably in the NATO alliance to also provide uh, Leopards 2's tanks. Um, uh, You already mentioned some caveats about the Abrams. It's It's a very sophisticated tank. And I'm not a tank specialist, but I've been talking to tank specialists a lot over the last several months, including just today. Um, uh, runs on jet fuel, very complex, could take a long time to get there. Um, But but that's, if it takes a long time to get there, better to take the first step today than to wait six months. Uh, And I think it's an important achievement. Um, I I would like to see more, right? I'd like to see more and faster. We can talk about that. But I think first we should celebrate the fact that uh, NATO has been strong. The Biden administration has been leading the alliance in ways that quite frankly, a lot of people did not think was possible just a year ago. And so I applaud what President Biden announced today. I was wondering if part of the U.S. commitment was symbolic in that, you know, Germany wanted to see if it's going to 
politically take this step of, of supplying uh, its tanks to Ukraine that the U.S. was willing to put up as well, even though the German tanks can get there obviously much faster than the U.S. tanks and have some advantages, uh, as, as I understand it, on the in the terrain of Ukraine over the Abrams as high tech as they are. So I was wondering, do you think that that is part of this? This is the U.S. saying, yeah, we're with you, Germany. You, you don't, don't have to take this step on your own. Yes, in terms of alliance politics, without question. Uh, and, you know, they, they've been debating this for many, many months, by the way. This is not just something that came uh, out of the blue. Uh, this has been a conversation for a long time. I, I interact with Biden uh, administration officials fairly frequently, and, and I can tell you that they've been debating this weapon systems and others for a long time. Uh, and so uh, this it was a necessary condition for the Germans to move forward for us to move forward with them. That said, I also talk to Ukrainian uh, government officials uh, fairly frequently, and I want people to understand that they don't see this as symbolic at all. Uh, they want these Abrams tanks, and they want way more uh, than, than they've been pledged so far. They want way more leopards than have been pledged so far, because tragically, they think this will be a long war, uh, and, and they want as many weapon systems to learn now because they may be fighting uh, the Russians for a long time. And if they're not fighting the Russians, they're going to be deterring future wars. And I think that's important for everybody to get their, their heads around. Uh, whenever this horrible, barbaric, uh, unnecessary war ends, uh, the most immediate phase after that will be one, post-war reconstruction, but also enhancing deterrence so that it doesn't happen again. And to do that, I think needs Ukraine needs to get onto Western platforms, onto NATO platforms, and stop relying on Soviet platforms, right? So, so instead of S-300s, they need Patriots. Instead of MiG-29 jets, they need uh, F-16s. Um, and instead of, you know, T-72 tanks, uh, they want Abrams. Um, and the other thing I'll say about Abrams, again, I want to underscore five or six more times in this conversation. I'm not a, I'm not a tank expert, um, but I do know that we just sold a bunch of Abrams to the Poles uh, not too long ago. Uh, and I've lived in Poland and I've traveled to Ukraine a lot. The terrain between those two countries is not that different. So okay. all of these arguments you hear about, well, it's not useful and jet fuels. Refueling so hard, challenges. Refueling challenges. Well, if it was, why did we have Abrams in the first place? Um, and and I just I, I just I'm reminded that we had this same debate about Patriots several months ago. Too sophisticated, too hard, will take too long. Uh, better to use the S-300s, right? That's the anti-aircraft, anti-missile system that the Soviets built and the Ukrainians have. And many of our uh, allies that, that used to be, you know, under the thumb of the Soviets, uh, they have them too. I would just say in the long run, modernization of Ukrainian uh, military capacity is something we need to invest in uh, anyway uh, for deterrence, if not for the war. And if it's going to take a long time to get there, uh, better take that first step now. 
Uh, Ambassador, I just want to take a moment uh, to remind those that are watching, wherever you are across the United States or internationally with our program, that you can ask questions of Ambassador McFall. Uh, please do it in the Q&A that you see there on your screen. And it'd be great if you could add your first name and even the location where you're at. Just nice to give a sense of the range of the program, where people are watching from across the country and internationally. So again, please do that in the Q&A that you see there at the bottom of your screen. And if you don't mind, include your first name and your location. Ambassador McFall, for the, for the NATO countries that have been supplying even the defensive weapons to this point, to what degree are they taking a risk? Because if Russian aggression doesn't end in Ukraine, what is then their potential vulnerability? You know, we have a huge arsenal. Many of these kind of other countries in Europe don't. So what risk are they undertaking? Uh, they're taking a risk. And I'm glad you raised that. Um, uh, when there's the argument about, well, this is escalatory and will be seen as escalatory in Moscow, that is true. Uh, and, uh, you know, as a former government official, I know that those are hard decisions that my former colleagues, many of the people, you know, making these decisions in the in the Biden administration are people I work with uh, in the Obama years, including, by the way, the president himself. Um, uh, I, I went to Ukraine with the president uh, back when he was vice president. Now, now that I think about it. So they're hard decisions um, about escalation, uh, both on the conventional side and and even they have to think about the use of nuclear weapons. Right. Um, and, and I appreciate how hard those decisions are. Uh, that said, I would say a couple of things that we've learned so far uh, in the way this war has rolled out over the last 11 months. First, uh, no NATO country has been attacked. That's a fantastic achievement of the NATO alliance. The NATO alliance has deterred Russia from attacking them. Uh, that's the purpose of the alliance in the first place, right? And I think in addition to military, you know, we've been talking about military systems. I think it's important for people to remember the enhancement of NATO that the Biden administration led, 20,000 extra soldiers there now on the front lines, uh, that has enhanced that deterrent capability. That is good news. Um, and at this point, when thinking about a conventional attack, if Putin is struggling already uh, in fighting the Ukrainians, I think it's highly unlikely that he would attack the largest uh, military alliance uh, in the world, anchored by the most uh, powerful military in the world, the United States of America. Remember, Article 5 of NATO says an attack on one is an attack on all. Uh, and if Putin were to attack any of those frontline NATO states, we would be obligated by the, our treaty uh, to, to defend our allies. Um, and I just don't, I see that as a very low probability event, given how the Russian military is struggling again, just fighting Ukrainians by themselves. Ambassador I'm to, oh, I'm sorry. Well, just to add, I'm, I'm more worried about the use of a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine, because I don't think Putin has a lot of great escalatory choices. That's one he still does have. Um, I still think it's a very low probability event. I want to I want to emphasize that. You know, if I were working at the CIA, uh, the CIA's job is to give estimates about probabilistic estimates about what's going to happen in the future. Um, my guess, I don't have access to classified intelligence anymore, but my guess is that's a very low probability event. 
But even if it's 2%, we need to be worried about it and do all we can to minimize it. But I still think it's a it's it's unlikely to happen. And therefore, I don't think it's a good argument uh, for deciding not to provide this weapon or that weapon. It may be low risk, but of course, as you're suggesting, high impact. If it does, you anticipated my next question, which is what are the odds that Putin decides to escalate in Ukraine, that he decides come spring, he's just going to, you know, uh, send masses of Russian soldiers in and um, do everything possible to try and, and push back on the Ukrainian defenses. Well, that's most certainly what he and people around him are talking about, right? They're talking about the big spring offensive, uh, drafting 300,000 more soldiers, uh, talking about a three-front uh, counteroffensive, not just a one-front counteroffensive. That's the chatter uh, if you watch and listen to Russian state-controlled television. And, and most certainly, uh, the Ukrainians are worried about that. They've said that publicly. Uh, including their 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 the, the commander of all their armed forces, General Zaluzhny, he said exactly that. He said that's what they worry about. Uh, and Zaluzhny himself said he thinks Putin is going to try to take Kiev again. So that right. we therefore should be worried about that as well. Having said that, I think it's also important to point out that Russia today has already lost over fifty percent of the territory that it seized last year. So the, they're not winning, they're losing. Uh, by the way, President Putin just changed the general in charge of the war. Uh, leaders don't change their generals when they're winning wars, they change their generals when they're losing wars. Number two, they're making some, some inroads, right, around these cities called Bakhmut and Solidar. Uh, and you know, different reporting says different things, whether they've captured or not, the Ukrainians say no, the Russians say yes. But they've made some incremental gains there. But if you look closely at what's happening there, I think there's two troubling signs for Mr. Putin. One, the fighting forces are not even Russian conventional soldiers. It's this, this private military called the Wagner Group that's doing the fighting. Uh, two, they are losing massive casualties for very incremental gains. As one of my colleagues in the Biden administration said, they're just they're just throwing these these innocent, you know, these not these innocent. They're not innocent at all. They're they're most of them are former prisoners that they released to fight in this war. But they're just throwing bodies at this problem to make gains in guerrilla fighting in in these villages. Uh, these sit, you know, these kind of street to street fighting. That is not the kind of fighting that you you roll your your tanks you know, back to take uh, all of the Donbass, let alone Kiev. That's a very different kind of fight that that they just haven't shown that they have the capability well, to conduct. And for the, the 300,000 that, that you're talking about from reports, presumably that would require conscripted, you know, non-prisoners, civilian soldiers. At what point does the Russian population, you know, mothers and fathers say, you know, we can't abide this. And and Putin starts to lose his grip. Is that a potential result? Well, again, I want to I want to underscore I'm a political scientist um, and I, I've written about revolutions. I teach a course on revolutions and democratization. And I want to say very humbly, uh, we in political science, we're really bad about predicting those kinds of events. I also worked five years in the U.S. government uh, and without uh, you know, revealing secrets, 
I would say that the CIA is not so good at it either. <laughs> so uh, we should all be very humble uh, in pretending that we know what's going to happen about the future, what, whether we're talking about the battlefield or revolution coups inside Moscow. Having said that, let me let me say a few things that we've been able to witness so far. First, the la the, the first mobilization that he announced in September was very unpopular. Uh, as many Russian men left Russia as signed up and enlisted when they were called to do so in September. Think about that. Hundreds of thousands. We don't know exactly. It's hard to track. But, but best guesstimates are hundreds of thousands left Russia because they did not want uh, to die in Putin's war. Number two, you know what else happened right after that? Massive uptick in, in Russian viewership of independent media, uh, mostly in exile these days, and of opposition YouTube channels. Uh, Mr. Navalny, Alexei Navalny, the leading opposition figure, uh, his team still runs opposition uh, that still runs, it's called Navalny Live, these YouTube channels, their numbers went way up. Why is that? Because people were, were anxious about that mobilization. So I think if he does it again, you're going to see those patterns again. And, and I don't want to predict that that leads to revolution or anything like that. But but his numbers are soft in support of the war. Most people, you know, support the war. By the way, Remember, with these polls, you have incredibly high rates of non-refusal, uh, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. If you can go to jail for 15 years for criticizing Putin's war, guess what? You're not that motivated to, to answer anonymous pollsters' calls. But even with those flaws, we see declining support, and we see it also being very surface level, right? For, uh, people support it because it's the government, but they also, polls show that if Putin announced a ceasefire tomorrow, 70% would support that. What, uh, so I think, you know, the support is there, but it's not very robust. And to what extent do you think the Russian public sees Ukraine as part of Russia, not just uh, the Crimean Peninsula, but, but the totality of Ukraine? Again, it's hard to know. Um, if you go back uh, and you look at opinion polls, I'm just doing this off the top of my head, so I should be careful here. I should have brought my polling data. I used to do polling in Russia uh, quite extensively. And if you're a taxpayer, you paid for it. Uh, so thank you. Um, uh, I, I, I'm not doing that these days. Uh, I'm banned from Russia. I, I can't do field work in Russia anymore. But, but if you look at polling before the war, what was very striking about it was that people did not accept this narrative that Putin puts out there that says, you know, Ukrainians are just Russians with accents. Uh, 30 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union and independence, uh, you, you see it in the polling that, that, that people had learned to accept that Ukrainians are different. Uh, and, and, and just by the way, just because you speak the same language, doesn't mean uh, you can't be part of different countries. Uh, I grew up on the Canadian border. They spoke the same language I did, almost with the same exact accent, by the way. But everybody understood they were Canadians when we were Americans. Um, so I, I think that myth that Putin has tried to propagate has not fared very well. Number two, nobody has done more to develop a sense of Ukrainian nationalism and civic identity, not ethnic identity, very important, civic identity. Uh, because there are lots of people that identify ethnically as Russian in Ukraine who consider themselves citizens of Ukraine. 
don't buy this propaganda out there that they're all, you know, waiting to be part of Russia. We've seen, even on the ground, we've seen when these cities have been liberated that that's not true. And, and I think that has been um, a cataclysmic failure of Putin's invasion more than probably any moment in the history of Ukraine. He's helped to consolidate that national identity and that national identity is looking West, not East. And I think that that the Russians, if they're, you know, again, information flows are hard, but I, I think that divide uh, will be a lasting legacy of this tragic war. Ambassador, let's let's talk about Russia's economic status, because Putin undertook this war with great risk and with the apparent belief that there was enough leverage with Russian fossil fuel over Europe that um, he would get a tepid response from NATO as a result. Well, we have seen unseasonably warm winter uh, in Europe, as well as creative ways that the EU has been able to to work around um, the significant restriction on natural gas and oil. So where has that left the Russian economy at this point, and how has that affect Putin's hold? So, uh, Larry, you're absolutely right, to the best of our knowledge, about Putin's assessments, right? about what would be the reaction. And there were some reason for him to think that because that's what happened when he invaded Georgia in 2008. Do you know how many sanctions were put in place against Russia after 2008? Zero. Not a single person was sanctioned after that war. 2014, there were more sanctions, more, way more comprehensive than at any time against Russia. And, and President Obama, I was out of the government by that time, but and Angela Merkel should get credit for that. But it was still tepid compared to what we've seen today. And that's what Putin was counting on. There's no doubt in my mind, listening to his propagandists and, and, and you know the best we can tell about his thinking, he thought Europe was going to be divided. Remember, he's been cultivating allies in, in Europe for decades now. People that think along his kind of orthodox, conservative, uh, autocratic values, you know, people like Viktor Orban and Hungary and Salvini and Italy and Le Pen and France, th this illiberal international, I call them, he's been cultivating these relationships for a long time. And so he he underestimated the unity of the West and particularly Europe uh, with respect to what they did. I think it's just fantastic. I think we should give the Europeans a lot of credit because if you go back and you look at what people were saying in January, February, and even after the war began, everyone was saying there's no way we can cut off oil. There's no way, especially gas. And yet they've done it. Uh, and he underestimated that. And it is costly to the, the Russian economy and it is costly to the Russian government, which relies uh, uh, heavily on the export of energy uh, as a source of of of, of uh, income to to support this war, um, and and then combined with all the other sanctions, th there have been economic uh, impact in terms of you know lower GDP rates this year, lower GDP rates expected next year for sure. That said, I think it's also important to acknowledge that it's not enough to change Putin's calculus. Right, he has not ended the war because of sanctions. That doesn't mean they're ineffective. Uh, I think that's an, an important distinction. Uh, we sent these incredible systems, they're called HIMARS, right? These long-range rocket systems that are that are, the Ukrainians talk about them as being a game changer uh, with respect to the way they can fight the war. 
But the HIMARS haven't ended the war either. But nobody would say, well, the HIMARS are ineffective because they haven't ended the war. I, I think that's an, an important analogy with sanctions. Um, uh, I think the longer the war goes, the, 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 the more economic consequences there will be. Um, and I hope that in 2023, we won't just stop with the sanctions that we've put in place, but we'll begin to ratchet them up. Um, the, the metaphor I like to use, I, I, I coordinate a sanctions working group, and we publish all kinds of papers on this um, um, over the course of the year. Um, the, the metaphor I use is parking tickets. I don't know where it is, where you, Larry, you live, Larry, but here at Stanford, uh, if you park your car illegally, you're going to get a pretty big ticket uh, that first day. You you park where you're not supposed to. Um, but you know what? If you don't if you don't move your car, you get another ticket the second day, and the third day, and the fourth day, and the fifth day. I think that's the way conceptually we have to rethink sanctions. Right now, we we kind of do it in response to an action that Russia takes, you know, or something horrible that happens in the war, and then we stop. I think that's wrong. I think okay. every day that Russian soldiers are occupying Ukraine, the, the sanctions need to be ratcheted up. Uh, Ambassador, um, so we see next year, just from what I've been seeing, Russia seems also well prepared to deal with um, what it's going to need for its energy come winter. So over time, if Russia doesn't withdraw, if the fight for Ukraine continues into next year, one would have to think, given the large role that energy plays in the Russian economy, that this, this is going to see itself in other aspects, whether it's employment, inflation, and other aspects of the government. So just looking out, I, again, I know we don't even want to predict a month from now, but it would seem that in the long term, as long as Ukraine can hold out and continue to resist the Russian offensive, that that time is on its side. Do you agree? Uh, yes and no. Uh, let me be specific. So one, all those things you described uh, will happen. Uh, and I didn't go through all the things that have already happened, right? The thousands, 1,500, whatever the number is up to now of companies that have left, foreign companies that have left and are never going back. Uh, Russia will never benefit from that kind of economic activity as a result of that. Tens of thousands of the best and brightest of Russia have also left. I don't think they're going back anytime soon, too. Other long-term negative effects uh, for the Russian economy. And I could go through a long list of those things. There's one problem. Russia's a dictatorship. So the the those that are suffering economically, they're not going to vote Putin out of office. They don't have that ability to do so. So that's the first problem. And then the second problem is, yes, those things are happening, but because Russia has so many natural resources that it can export uh, and increasing to places like China and India that are not participating in sanctions, um, Putin has, I think, a pretty long tail in terms of how he can okay. finance his war compared to, say, other countries, uh, smaller economies. I was part of the sanctions uh, team put in place sanctions against Iran, by the way. Uh, we put our first big round of sanctions in 2010 to try to pressure Iran to negotiate uh, uh, over their nuclear weapon systems. And then we put in all kinds of more sanctions after that. It took five years before it had a choking effect enough 
that the Iranians started to talk to us. And that's with a much smaller economy than Russia. So you, sanctions need to keep in place. They they will have those effects. But when they, they, they when they actually change Putin's calculus, that's a lot harder to predict. Okay. And what what's going on with India? So why why does India take this neutral position and has upped its purchases of Russian energy like 30-fold? What what are the reasons behind that? Well, first, I, I just want to say I think it's tragic that they have. Um, you know, for me, when I, I used to study uh my my PhD dissertation at Oxford, by the way, Larry was about um, you know, the end of empires in, in Southern Africa and great power competition over Africa. So I used to study colonialism uh, many decades ago. Uh, this, this war that Putin has launched, this invasion of Ukraine, is obviously an attempt to recolonize Ukraine, right? Uh, they gained their independence 30 years ago, and now he's going back in to try to subjugate them. And, and so I would hope that all former colonies of the world, including India and and everywhere else, would see it in those terms and would say that that you know if you're against colonialism uh, and you're you're for national liberation and sovereignty, you know we had a big discussion of those things in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and even 80s around the world. You should be supporting the Ukrainians. Tragically, that's not the frame that governments and societies in the global south are using. Some do, by the way. It's not black and white. Some do. Remember, there was an incredible speech by the Kenyan ambassador to the United Nations in the run-up to this war that that framed it in those terms. So it's a debate in different places. The Indians don't see it that way. Um, And, you know, their argument, when I talk to Indian officials and, um, you know, um, academics, is... One, they they frame it in different terms. This is not a, a war of colonization. It's it's you know it's another conventional war in Europe. Uh, you know, echoing back to World War II. Uh, and two, they say, well, we have to do what's in our interests. Uh, and right now, we can get uh, energy supplies from uh, Russia at a highly discounted rate. Right, the Russians have to sell uh, their oil at like a thirty percent discount. Uh, because of sanctions and the difficulties of shipping it around. And they say, well, you know, we need that for our economy. So you asked me to explain it. And I think that's, yeah. the, that's the explanation. So it's, I don't it's, agree it's, with that. I'm just yeah. explaining why. But it's largely doing. economic self-interest as they yes. see it. That's, that's yeah, the frame. And, but I would add, I, let me add one more thing. There is this legacy of the Cold War that lingers. Uh, remember, the Indians were big trading partners with the Soviets during the Cold War. A lot of military, um, you know, weapon sales from the Soviets and Russians to the Indians. And, uh, and amazingly, those legacies last a long time. Yeah, you've written about that. I've read your work where where you write about sort of that prism um, as opposed to what we might think of being more of the of the former colony prism through which uh, seeing that. Uh, I want to ask you about Tuesday's dismissals of Ukrainian officials over corruption allegations. Ukrainian journalists have reported on highly inflated food prices that have been paid for the military. So there have been a, a number of dismissals, including some governors um, by uh, President Zelensky. Um, what do you know about, you know, more specific details on this? And does it does it concern you that given the amount of aid that's going from the U.S. and NATO generally to Ukraine, that uh, that may not end up getting where it needs to go? 
Well, these are hard things to untangle. The Anytime you're trying to trace corruption, that's a really hard social science question. Um, yeah, well, it's a hard question for anyone. Um, but let me say a couple of things. One is, uh, I think there's a conventional wisdom in my country, at least, and, and I think probably in many countries in Europe, that that Ukraine is this corrupt place and it's always been corrupt. And, and you know, I've heard people even talk about like cultural, you know, proclivities towards corruption. I think that's all a bunch of hogwash. Uh, there's corruption in all countries, including the United States of America, uh, reading about it every day. Um, uh, we don't see that in Los Angeles, though, Ambassador. We, you don't we see don't it? Okay, I don't follow. We don't, yeah, here. we don't know about that. Question. You don't know about that. Okay, uh, good to know. Uh, there could be pockets that are different. But <laughs> number one, just it's corruption is is not something that just Ukrainians do. It's, it's around the world. Number two, uh, I don't think we focused enough on the efforts that the Ukrainian government, including under President Zelensky, have done to fight corruption. They did all kinds of things before this war that they, I don't think, gets enough attention uh, in, in the West and most certainly in the United States debate about it. Uh, you know, the, the, the decentralization reforms that happened uh, before the war started that has, has been a really important check on corruption. The anti-corruption organizations uh, in the government, and especially a robust civil society fighting anti-corruption. These are all things that I think we need to pay more attention to. That's number two. It's not as bad, I think, as the reputation uh, suggests. And by the way, um, democracy and an independent media and opposition political parties, those are exactly the things, and independent media, those are exactly the things that fight corruption. Part of the reason Zelensky won in 2019 was he was the outsider coming in to clean up, you know, uh, you know, I'm, uh, think of uh, some of the analogizing in our country, right, to clean up all the swampland of Kiev. Uh, uh, that, and he won, right, against the incumbent. Uh, that's what democratic societies do. So that's number two. And number three, I would say what were these, uh, you know, these uh, what's happened in the last couple of days is a sign that even during times of war, President Zelensky and his government are willing to crack down on corruption. That's a good sign, not a bad sign from my point of view. But then finally, what happens afterwards? Uh, you know, post-war reconstruction, by some estimates, will cost, you know, $700 billion, right? Uh, there's going to be massive aid flows coming into that country. And, and I think uh, no country, uh, nobody has uh, a greater interest in making sure that there's not corruption during that period. And for that matter, Larry, as you rightly described right now with economic assistance, than President Zelensky. Because, yes. because they, I, I talk to his officials fairly frequently, they don't believe that the Western governments are going to give, you know, $750 a trillion to rebuild the Ukrainian uh, economy. They're, they don't say that publicly. They, they're going to push as hard as they can, but they don't think we're going to do that. Uh, and I think they're right about that. So what they need is they need private investment. And the only way they're going to attract massive private investment to rebuild their co economy is to be transparent as possible to be to create the permissive conditions for that kind of investment. Uh, and therefore, they're highly aligned, I think, to be anti-corruption advocates within their government. 
let, let and let's let's go back to the actual the spending that the U.S. is doing now. Estimate I've seen forty billion dollars military uh, aid for for Ukraine. Is there an upper limit that you think, or is if you know if this ends up uh, becoming protracted for years, it, is this something that is just so um, existential for Europe that we need to to fund it limitlessly, or is there a point at which we say we simply can't afford to continue doing this? Well, uh, I saw some former politicians on that uh, on the line before I I got on, Larry. You should ask those guys. Ask uh, those people that understand domestic politics here in America uh, better than I do, because I I do I think it's a serious domestic political matter. But let me let me speculate a bit. Um, number one, uh, I worry about the war going on for a long time, and that's why I believe uh, let's let's go all in now. To help the Ukrainians with victory, so I, I applauded what the announcement today. But but let's do more. Let's provide jets. Let's provide attackums. These long range missile systems. Let's provide uh, you know reapers and you know uh, manned uh, armed uh, autonomous vehicles, uh, drones. Let's let's go all in now to help the Ukrainians liberate their territories now because a protracted war. I don't think, you know, protracted war is a euphemism, by the way, for just letting uh, people be slaughtered on the battlefield. I, I want to be very clear about that. When when I hear politicians sometimes say, we should just let this go on for a long, long time, and then they'll eventually be exhausted. What they're really saying is, let's just allow a lot of people die for years and years and years. So I think that's an immoral position. But number two, I also worry about the politics you know, here in the United States and and. Uh, in Europe as well. And that's why I think pushing for breakthrough now uh, is not just the, the moral position, but I also think it's the politically prudent one, because if it it, it begins to w- grind into a protracted stalemate, I worry about domestic support. Uh, most certainly the Repub- elements of the Republican Party have talked about that already. Uh, I think we're going to see a bigger divide in the United States between uh, those that will say military support, yes. Economic support, no. Uh, okay. Europeans should do that. That's a dangerous Whatever. place I think we're going to get uh, closer to. And finally, when we roll into presidential elections, again, I'm not an expert on American politics. I'm just an observer. Uh, but I do know that there's a prominent candidate, Mr. Trump, that's never been a big enthusiast for uh, aid for Ukraine. And as this debate becomes more politicized, uh, in a presidential election year, I think it's going to be harder and harder to sustain that support. All right. Uh, well, uh, Kiwi, one of our viewers just uh, was wondering about the depth of American support for some of the rhetoric from some Republican politicians who are against. And, and I know you said uh, maybe better to, to let domestic experts, but you've had a chance to see how this these sorts of political arguments have have um, carried out in other issues, whether it's Iran, we're talking about North Korea or other other countries. Um, and so do you think this is going to be a central issue in the upcoming presidential election or in what you've seen typically to domestic economic issues um, supersede that? Well, let me say a few things. First, you know, public opinion polls show uh, still show strong support for assistance to Ukraine. So maybe it's, you know, it's not where it was six months ago, but, you know, if you look at those numbers, 
Chicago Council on Foreign Affairs, I think, just published some numbers a few weeks ago, is still stronger among the population than it may be with certain elites, uh, political uh, politicians that want to make an argument about that. Um, Number two, uh, I do, however, believe that, that President Biden needs to explain to the American people What's at stake here? You alluded to it, and I forgot to answer it in your last question. But this is not just about what happens in Ukraine. This is about security in Europe. Uh, and if if Putin, God forbid, would win in Ukraine, that that's a that's has very negative consequences for American national security interests because our NATO allies will be nervous. We're going to have to spend more money and send more American soldiers. Uh, to those frontline states uh, in order to reassure them that we are going to contain Mr. Putin in Europe. That's number one. Number two, it will have negative consequences uh, in other parts of the world. You know who's watching this war really, really closely? Xi Jinping in Beijing. Uh, And if Putin wins, I think that makes it, emboldens him to think about a military option for taking Taiwan. And that has catastrophic consequences for us, uh, pulling us into a war with uh, with with the People's Republic of China. Uh, n- nobody wants that. So I think actually winning in Ukraine uh, helps us to deter a war over Taiwan. And I would hope that all politicians, Republicans and Democrats alike, would see that to be in the American national interest. Uh, And Ambassador, we have a number of viewer questions, so I'm going to ask him a little bit uh, more rapid fire here so we get as many as we can. Allison in Los Angeles, um, thematically in keeping with what you're saying, what is the nature of the Russia-China relationship? Well, U.S.-China relations today, and, and especially before this war, have never been closer than than maybe you got to go back to 1949 uh, when the communists took over in China. And even that honeymoon period between communist China and communist Soviet Union didn't last very long. Remember, there was a big Sino-Soviet split fairly quickly after that. Uh, they have come together. They are close partners. In, in part, it's in, in reaction to us, right? It's a it's an autocratic alliance. It's not an alliance formally, but they're very close. A lot of economic uh, the economic relationships uh, deeper, ideological uh, relationship is deeper. Um, and right before Putin invaded Ukraine, they signed this really long document on February fourth. Putin was there for the Olympics, and, and and you should go look at it. It is it tells you about the depth of that relationship, and that that troubles me. That concerns me. I want to be clear about that. Having said that, uh, I think there's also evidence that Xi Jinping is disappointed in the conduct of Putin's invasion in Ukraine. I don't think he's sentimental about, you know, whether this is a good idea or a bad idea or the rules of the international system, but that Putin is performing so poorly uh, makes Xi Jinping nervous. Uh, And in one of their last meetings, I think it was in Samarkand in Uzbekistan, uh, that came up. Uh, Putin said, I know you have concerns about what we're doing. Um, and and I think it's very interesting that Xi Jinping has not been full in supporting of Putin's war in Ukraine, uh, rhetorically, not at the United Nations. Uh, he is not giving him, to the best of my knowledge, maybe he is secretly, but so far he's not giving him military assistance. The North Koreans are, 
The Iranians are, the Chinese are not. And so far, again, the best of my knowledge in the public space, domain space, uh, he's not violating the sanctions regime. Uh, that's also very curious to me. Uh, he's not giving Putin, you know, technologies that they they want, and that suggests that there's probably a little more tension in this relationship than one might see on the surface. And and also looking at this through what you were saying earlier, the prism of Taiwan, um, communist China relations as well. That that whole issue. Uh, Brooks asks um, if Putin were to be removed if if he were to be incapacitated and could not lead Russia, would he likely be replaced by a right-wing militaristic general? Again, I wanted to just be humble. Uh, you're asking me to, Ruth, Ruth, I think, to ask the question, right? Predict the future. And, um, you know, uh, I've gotten some things right over the years, over the decades of writing about the future, but I've gotten some things wrong. And so I just want to keep saying I don't know the answer to your question, and you should never believe anybody that answers your question and says, oh, it'll absolutely be this way. Uh, we just need to be humble in what we can predict. Um, having said that, with that caveat on the table first, um, my if, if Putin leaves office for health reasons in a kind of normal way, uh, I think that the somebody like him or his hand-pointed successor would be the most likely person to take over. Um, uh, I, I, I don't, I think it's a low probability event, but not a zero probability event that a, a right-wing coup could take place, a right-wing general could take over. Uh, and by the way, if you're really interested in details, uh, I just started on Substack, uh, and I just wrote a long piece exactly about these different scenarios. And so you can go look it up and, uh, all the articles, um, on Substack are free on my account right now. So, Please, if you want to get into the details, go check it out on, on Substack. But but here's the longer term. Um, you know, and it reminds me of like the end of Stalin or the end of Brezhnev, and especially Brezhnev. Uh, he was in power for a long time. And immediately after him, a couple of people took over who were kind of like him. But eventually there was pushback and there was a move back and it was like, we've got to get off this track we've been on of this imperial, you know, aggressive foreign policy abroad and economic stagnation here at home. And that led to Gorbachev coming to power. Uh, I, I think like Brezhnev overreached in Afghanistan, and that was one of the causes that, that unraveled the Soviet Union and led to these reformers taking over. I think Putin did overreach in Ukraine. It's having really negative consequences for the economy, for the economic elite in particular uh, inside Russia. Nobody, no, very few people are benefiting or like this war in that circle of people. I used to know that circle rather well. Um, and I think the first person to take over will probably be some Putin protege, but I don't think that system will last very long. I think there'll be pressures from the economic elites and even from society to, 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 to say, you know, we did Putinism for 25 years. Uh, it's time to try something else. And I think yes. there's a, a lot of sentiment in society that will want to eventually push in that opposite direction. And is that because part of Putin's authority is a kind of cult of Putin? And 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 so if you have someone handpicked or someone Putin-like, it's still not Putin. And so that sort of, of, of power of the cult doesn't continue? Correct. Absolutely. 
He's been in power forever. Uh, they've nurtured this cult of personality uh, very deliberately, right? You've all seen him riding with his shirt off on horses and fishing and, you know, flying jets and all that stuff. Uh, there's nobody. Well, part of, part, of the, part of his problem is that he's cultivated such a cult of personality and wiped out all other political uh, figures that there's nobody obvious that could fill his shoes, right? So sometimes there's these people talked about, you know, Yevgeny Prigozhin, this guy, the head of the Wagner group, he could come in. Uh, the Chechen leader, you know, could come in or there's the new uh, person. There's Nikolai Patrashev, who's the general, who's the uh, uh, current secretary of the Security Council. His son is the new leading lights. You know, he could come in. None of them have political followings inside Russia. None of them have the kind of uh, cult of personality. That's a good phrase. Uh, and I think they would struggle to, to okay. consolidate power. I want to get in real quickly two more questions from okay. audience members, if we could. Good. Uh, Ron asks, how could Putin have miscalculated so badly in Ukraine? It's a great question, Ron. Um, I would say a couple of things. One is, if you've been in power for two decades, you stop listening to uh, your advisors. Uh, you stop having pluralism around you in terms of your advisors. You think you know everything. And that most certainly was the case with Putin, even when I was serving as a U.S. ambassador, listening to him. And then there was a decade more where he's been in his bubble, li literally lives out at his compound, doesn't come in to work very often. Uh, so he's disconnected from uh, sources of information. Number two, he's a former KGB guy, remember? So he really leans on that secret intelligence that comes from him from the intelligence community. And he's not, you know, he's not triangulating it with independent media or reading the New York Times or reading Ukrainian uh, news. Um, he's in that information bubble. I think that that's a second reason. Um, and then third, you know, all those generals uh, have, a, have a reason to exaggerate uh, their capabilities when talking to the big boss. And I think that also happened. And then fourth, it's related to the, the, uh, this information vacuum. But but I've heard Putin talk about Ukrainians. Um, he's got this kind of, you know, imperial way of talking about them, that they're soft, they're not a real country, they're not great like us. Uh, and I think he grossly miscalculated their okay. will to fight. Uh, their ability to fight. Uh, and and I, I think, you know, I can't prove that, but but remembering some of the times I heard him talk about Ukrainians before, I think that bias that he had about the Ukrainians uh, served him very poorly. Well, and probably all of us underestimated the Ukrainian resolve yes. to defend the country. I think it's been we an did. amazing, amazing show of fortitude and risk-taking and a sense of national identity. What That's we've a great seen point. From Ukrainians. It's 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 just uh it's been quite remarkable. Um Erica asks, if Putin perceives the war is lost, what might he do? Again, Erica, uh, I don't know. Uh, and don't believe anybody who answers your question definitively because nobody actually knows. Uh, by the way, that's part of the problem, right? We don't have a lot of interaction with Putin right now. Uh, and that's bad. I would like to have more second, you know, 
send Henry Kissinger there. Henry used to have a really good relationship with him. I just the fact that we don't have much information about his thinking troubles me. Um, but but I would say two things. The the conventional wisdom is that he, you know, it's the rat in the quarter metaphor, you know, off ramps and those kind of metaphors. And we we better be afraid of that. Uh, and I think we need to worry about that. I don't want to be dismissive of that. But but I would also say that uh, there, there could be the exact opposite response. That if Putin feels like he's losing, that might be when he started calling the European leaders that he's closest to and say, you know, we don't want World War III over a fight in Crimea. Help, help me pressure Zelensky to negotiate an end of this war that does not include Crimea or does not include Donbass as going back to Ukraine. Uh, again, I don't claim to be able to predict this, but but that to me is a much more plausible scenario than him saying, oh my gosh, we've lost Donbass, uh, let's drop a nuclear weapon on Ky- uh, Kiev uh, to punish them. I just... One, there's not a lot of military utility okay. to tactical nuclear weapons. People constantly exaggerate it. People, and then people always go back to the one, one time they knew that nuclear weapons were used, right? Uh, Japan, 1945. Well, those conditions are ra- radically different than this moment, right? Number one, Ukrainians don't feel like they're losing this war. They feel like they're winning. Number two, they feel like it's a just war, uh, not an illegitimate one. Uh, and number three, I, I talk to Ukrainians every day, including about these things. Um, my prediction is if Putin did such a horrific thing, that Ukrainians would fight harder, not say, oh, my goodness, we, we've got to stop We're fighting. Give up. Now yeah. that they, they killed our kids with a nuclear weapon, let's give up. And the last yeah. thing I'll say on Real this, quickly, yeah. uh, think about how Xi Jinping is going to react to that. Think about how the entire world will react. Think about how even Russian society and maybe even Russian generals would react to that. I don't think a lot of people are going to be saying, including Russian generals, oh, that was a really great thing we just did. Ambassador, this is absolutely fascinating. We're we're right to the close. And I want good, to Good, because I think I'm losing my voice. No, no, great conversation, I, great. I, real briefly, this has to be like a 40-second close, but I want to combine a viewer question with your close, because I think it'll dovetail. Philip asks, what do you see as the end game in Ukraine? Again, Philip, I don't know. Uh, uh, but I, I know what the best end game is. And that's the one that President Zelensky talks about, is liberating his land from the Russian occupiers. By the way, that's a pl- that makes the negotiation about the peace settlement easy because we know where the borders are. Uh, they believe they can do that. And I think we should give them the weapons to try. All right. I want to thank you, Ambassador. This has been extremely enlightening. We so appreciate your vast experience that you're able to bring to bear on this topic and to talk with us. And uh, I'm sure uh, we'll be hearing a great deal more from you in, in the months to come on this.